It's, it's been a, a fun week, and I know we're going through the book of Luke, but I wanted to take a moment to um, do a Palm Sunday uh, reflection. And uh, the only place in the scriptures where it speaks of Palm Sunday in the Gospels is not in Luke, it's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, but it's in John chapter 12, which we're going to take a look at this morning. But before we go there, I want to kind of set the, the stage a little bit. Um, it's, it's been a, a precious week on many accounts. Uh, a number of you, it was good to see you at the event that Gary Sinise put on, the Gary Sinise Foundation, the concert he did for our community and our first responders. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, all right, it was great, yeah. And I, I, uh, I had met him in Lynchburg, Virginia when I was back there um, speaking, and he was speaking after me, and I ran into him in the green room. I'd never met him before. Uh, very personable, very disarming smile. Uh, he had commented that he was doing an event in Thousand Oaks, and then he did that promo for us. Um, and, and, he, and I gave him my contact information, and, I, and he had given me a cell phone number. I said, I won't bother you with a cell phone, but here's my contact information. Well, I, I ended up doing a proclamation from the city for the event to say thank you. So I texted him yesterday uh, saying, this is Rob. I, I, I don't know uh, who you want me to give the proclamation to. And he says, he was real excited. And he said, come on out. And so I went out and had a chance to meet him. Um, and he was very kind and his texts were very appreciative. And then this morning at 4.45 in the morning, you know, I'm, uh, Michelle's gone with my son at a rowing competition and the phone lights up, and I wake up to a text, and it's from him. I'm like, dude, do you sleep? And, uh, and he, he just commented what a wonderful day it was, and then I, I copied him on uh, Proverbs 11.25. It says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And I just said, you know, you really blessed our community, and thank you for all you did. And, uh, he's, and, and I watched him with uh, the, the families of the borderline victims, um, and, and with each of them, just so personable and a lovely man, very kind, and, and the timing of it was, was precious. Um, I, I've been reflecting on just the events and all the, the heaviness of, of what we face as a community and looking at the green hills, and I'm, I'm so longing uh, for refreshment upon our community and, and the families and asking God's blessing, and I'm, I'm grateful for Resurrection Sunday, Palm Sunday, and the realization that we're watching, I think, personally in the community, um, God taking our ashes and turning it to beauty. And uh, I was with the evangelical pastors in the community this week talking about ministering together. And there's just a move of God's spirit in relation to that. And I went and met with the Interfaith Council, which is the, um, the imam, uh, two rabbis, one conservative, one reformed, uh, the Universal Unitarian Church, um, the... Uh, the LDS, uh, some Episcopalians, and, and they gathered, and I shared with them as well, and to see their hearts just yielding to wanting to see the community blessed, and uh, I went as, as mayor to talk about the homelessness issue, and it, it's pretty exciting to see uh, our hearts being knitted um, across just a, a vast spectrum of differences, um, watching as God's doing a, an amazing work, and I was blessed by it, and just having precious time in prayer, and then you can laugh at me, but my, my youngest child, Michael, he's a moviegoer, and uh, one of our ways of connecting is we go see movies together periodically when we, you know, he's not overwhelmed with homework, and I've, I've got an open area in my schedule. So we went to go see a movie, and he, he likes superhero movies and Star Wars movies, and so I went to go see, and, and I can't stand DC Comics. I thought they've done a terrible job on uh, the movies, um, but this DC comic was, it, it ended up being one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, that being said, um, 
there's, uh, there's the family-friendly website talking about movies, and they put a warning out. They say hard-to-stomach language uh, and some violence and some evil spirits, and so they can't give it its recommendation. So I just say that to the parents. Uh, but the movie, to me, uh, really blessed me. Uh, on the drive back, which I always do with Michael, we process it from a Christian worldview to kind of look at what it is that they're putting forward. And what was amazing to me, and the movie is called Shazam. I was waiting to transform, but it didn't work. Um, and it deals with moral knowledge because it deals with the seven deadly sins, uh, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Um, and, and, it, and it deals with foster parenting, which is fascinating to me because one of the things we talked about in the pastor, evangelical pastors is the need in foster program. I had a chance this week to meet with CASA, um, court-appointed special advocates, which is volunteers that come alongside some of these foster kids in the legal system. And we're going to start doing more with them as a church. And, and watching this movie with this foster family, watching them pray at the table, um, watching a young man deal with these sins and, and processing how to do the right thing. And I, I, was, I was very impressed. I, I left there thinking, you know, Hollywood got something right. I mean, it was really kind of cool. I was impressed. And Michael and I had a great conversation uh, on the ride home. And uh, it struck a chord for both of us. And I say all that because... Preparing for the message, um, as I came to John 12, just wanting to kind of tie in the palm fronds and Palm Sunday and seeing that this is the only uh, area in the Gospels that covers it, uh, I was touched by the final words of the passage, and I'll share that with you momentarily. Um, but this is really all culminating about, uh, around one thing, and that's that as a community, we're struggling, um, and, and our king is here, he's arrived, and he's ready to minister to us, and we we got to make sure we don't miss him. And uh, this text has really blessed me, and I pray it does the same for you. So would you turn to John t- chapter 12, if you have a Bible? If not, the folks walking down the aisles with a stack of books, those are Bibles, and they would love to give you one if you don't have one. You can even keep it if you'd like. Just raise your hand. Uh, relieve them of this burden. These books, I think, individually weigh at least 15 pounds each. No. Lead pages, amazing. All right, Um, so with that being said, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm going to pick up this morning at verse 12. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently, and uh, here we go. The passage reads, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, that's the Passover feast. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, and is quoted out of Zechariah 9.9. It's a messianic prophecy. They said, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. 
The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees were upset. They tried to kill Lazarus. They're going to try to kill Jesus. They will succeed in, in their, their desire to crucify him. And they think that they're going to succeed in establishing their government over his. But alas, this king will prevail. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and Holy Spirit. We ask that you would lead us into all truth. We thank you that you promised to do that. We thank you that you give us wisdom when we lack it. And all we need to do is ask you. And so God, please, by the riches of your word, which are true, by the power of them, and by you, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would minister to us this day that you would establish in our hearts our king. And so God, speak to us now. We commit our time and our lives, our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat. A lot of folks who are kind of new to Christianity um, or, or new to a Palm Sunday service don't know a lot about it. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna show you uh, in just a moment a video and, uh, and then I'm going to build on it. But before I show the video, I, I want to lay out a scenario. We have all these events that Micah went to great lengths to try to invite you to uh, so that you can grasp the intensity of what is really the most spe- specific and special event in Christendom. And that's Resurrection Sunday. But incorporated in that is Good Friday, which is where we look at the crucifixion of Christ. And then the Seder meal on, on uh, Friday night is the longest-running family meal in world history. It occurred when uh, three to five million Jews were enslaved in Egypt and then were delivered uh, by God through the leadership of Moses. Um, And then Pharaoh, through the plagues, released these slaves. Uh, He pursued them. God drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And then the Jews ended up in the wilderness, which is a polite way of saying the desert. Uh, you can see it on a map, and it's a, a place where nothing lives. And for 40 years, the Jews wandered in this region of the world. And 40,000 tons of food a day were provided miraculously by the Lord. Water was provided where there wasn't any. Their clothes never wore out, the scriptures say. Their shoes never wore out. 40 years they wandered. And then we also know that Moses went up on the mountain and God downloaded to these three to five million Jews. As he went up on the mountain, God downloaded a moral app, um, the Ten Commandments, the first five commandments relationship with God, second five commandments relationship with each other. And he came down from the mountain and the people had already returned to their selfish behavior, the seven sins of uh, uh, the evil sins that, that you can see in the movie Shazam. Uh, Billy Batstone covered them and you had the gluttony and had envy, had lust. And, and they had built this golden calf. Moses comes down with these 10 commandments. The people start to yield to the authority of God. And the greatest miracle of all that I've listed to me, and I've expressed this before many times, the greatest miracle was that three to five million people uh, dwelt together without a standing army or a police force because they understood that they're accountable to God and accountable to each other. They did have a representative form of government when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, said, you need, you need to appoint godly men who are not covetous over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, which is the equivalent today of federal, state, county, local government. And so they, they had a representative form of government, wandered 40 years in the wilderness, but without a police force or a standing army, and survived and did exceptionally well. Then they had a series of judges, uh, Gideon, Deborah, uh, different judges that were appointed by God, not a monarchy, but judges that they could come to if they had an issue with one another, similar to what Moses had done. And then finally, the people just got tired of it. 
And they said, we want a king like everyone else, and I'll cover that momentarily, what God did in relation to that. And the king was established, and then the king became corrupt, and the nation was lost, and the Israelites were sold into slavery once again into Babylon. And then um, in that season of time, uh, that's where this prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 that is now quoted in uh, John 12.15 when Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, um, the donkey's colt comes in. Uh, Zechariah 9.9 was given uh, as a prophetic, a messianic prophecy to say that the king is coming. And they waited 500 years after that prophecy. And at that moment, on that Palm Sunday, when he's coming into Jerusalem, then all of a sudden the people began to realize this is our king. Well, shortly after that, they'd have him crucified, buried, and then as we know, he'd be resurrected. But at this moment, they've come face to face with their king and they're not sure what to do with him. So with that being said, one more thing I want to add before you see the video. The Seder meal on Friday night is a picture of the Passover. The angel of death in Egypt came through Egypt and everyone that didn't have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, their firstborn died. But those that were covered by the blood of the lamb lived. And it was judgment on those that didn't have God's blood to cleanse them for their their sin. And this picture of the Passover to deliver people from slavery into life is this picture of the meal that they celebrate. And every element of the Seder meal reflects Christ. It's, it's a fascinating picture. We tie all this in because in the Seder meal, you see the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world to cleanse us of unrighteousness that we would be reconciled to God and have this moral app to not only dwell with him, but to dwell with each other. He's the king and we are his subjects. And this is the picture of what God intended for mankind. We've wandered from that. We've had 6,000 years of recorded history where rulership and government has been anything but humble. It's been oligarchies for 6,000 years. And now we come to a place where God wants to restore his dominion. That's a tough word. Let's say his sovereignty. His sovereignty in the hearts of his people. Watch this and see the picture of Palm Sunday. It was not the first time Jerusalem had been flooded with people shouting Hosanna. That was Passover. It happened every year, with branches representing victory. Pilgrims would stream into the gates, prepared to recite together Psalm 113 through 118, including the joyful greeting, Hosanna, Lord save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But this was different. The rabbi on the donkey was a sensation, a worker of true miracles, and a teacher unlike any other. It was said he had raised a dead man back to life. Surely he had the power of God. Those fortunate enough to see him entering the city shouted out their greetings and made the way more beautiful by laying down their cloaks and branches, as they would do for the most honored of men. That was Passover. That was the celebration of the blood of the lambs. God kept his word, and the angel passed over their sons in Egypt. How many hoped this man would be that angel of death for the Romans? How few understood that he was, instead, the lamb. The lamb whose blood would save them from sin 
and death. Had they known, would they have gone silent? Or would they have joined us today, shouting more loudly still, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I really like that video in the, in the aspect that it presents the Lamb of God and especially this idea that he's coming in during the Passover, which is this longest running family meal in the history of the world. And it represents um, the Passover lamb, uh, that the angel of death would pass over the home that's covered in the blood. And, and ultimately it would reflect to the sinless lamb of God, which is the Messiah, Christ. And he enters in on Passover and they don't realize he is the Passover lamb. And he's coming in to die. A king doesn't do that. A king comes in to reign and to rule and supremacy. And as I was reflecting on this idea of how to treat a king, because they declared when he walked into Jerusalem and he came, um, he had found a young donkey and he sat on it. And, And the scripture says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they said, the king of Israel. And they declare him king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. How do kings travel? How are they received? How are those in authority that, that, that rule over men? Um, how do they travel? And, and I, I pulled this up. I, I love Air Force One. Uh, and I, I even did a study in relation to Air Force One that the, the riding on the side of the airplane was done specifically to create a backdrop, have significance, that people would be moved by this, this instrument of machinery that the minute it lands in any country, it establishes the sovereignty of, of the United States. As the president comes down, you can see the red carpet. Here you have uh, uh, military personnel from the visiting country lining to honor this arriving um, world leader and to represent the United States of America. And it is a significant way to travel. Uh, I think another way to travel would be when the queen comes to parliament and you see the pomp and circumstance and how regal it is. And there you see them standing in honor of the queen when she travels, especially in the Jubilee. I mean, look at that chariot. It is stunning. It is remarkable. It's beautiful. Uh, and then the president, when he travels, uh, he doesn't go in the carriage that the queen travels in. Uh, the president of the United States travels in what they call the beast. Uh, it's a car. This car is a moving fortress made of steel, aluminum, titanium, ceramic. Uh, a steel plate runs underneath the car to protect against bombs or grenades. I, I'm, I'm not finished yet. This is, take a look at this. This is a cool one. The rear compartment uh, seats the president and up to four passengers with glass partition. Only the president has the switch to lower it. The car has a panic button and its own oxygen supply. The doors are armor-plated, eight inches thick, and the weight of a cabin door on a Boeing 757 jet. When closed, they form a 100% seal to protect the occupants in the case of a chemical attack. The chauffeur is trained by the U.S. Secret Service to cope with the demanding, uh, with the most demanding of driving conditions, including the escape evasion and a 180-degree J-turn. The windows are five layers of glass and polycarbonate. They can withstand an armor-piercing bullet. The only window that can open by just three inches is the driver's. The driver's compartment. Uh, has a dashboard that contains a communication center and a GPS uh, tracking system. It has night vision cameras, tear gas, and grenade launchers. Uh, the tires are Kevlar reinforced tires, are shred and puncture resistant with steel rims underneath, enabling the car to escape even if the tire is destroyed. 
The chassis is reinforced steel plates uh, to protect against bombs. Uh, the defense accessories, it has pump action shotguns, uh, tear gas cannons, bags of the president's RH negative blood type kept on board in case he needs a transfusion. Uh, the bodywork is military grade armor, at least five inches thick, combination of dual hardness, steel, aluminum, titanium, ceramic uh, to break up projectiles. Almost finished, hang in there. Uh, the rear seats. Um, the president has a satellite phone with a direct link to the vice president and the Pentagon. The fuel tank, armor-plated, filled with special foam that prevents it from exploding even after a direct hit. And then finally, the boot, uh, firefighting system, tear gas, and smokescreen dispensers that shoot out under attack. That is called the beast. That's a way that a world leader, a government leader, a king, a queen should travel. And yet our king came in on a donkey. (laughs) It's hard for a man or a woman to look elegant, studly on that creature. Thus depicted here. And Christ typically coming in on a donkey guaranteed his legs were dragging. It is not a majestic beast by any way, shape or form. Even the artist here who tried to remove the Semitic picture of Christ um, depicts him coming in and even in an attempt to make him look regal, that beast looks really strange. He looks so big compared to the donkey. Would you agree? Yeah. And yet this is how the king arrived. The scripture says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. And then Zechariah 9.9, here you see in... John 12, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. And then it says in Zechariah 9, 9, the passage reads, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, That prophecy languished for 500 years after its writing before it was fulfilled in what you're seeing here in this passage of scripture. And after its fulfillment for thousands of years, we've been celebrating that day when Christ rode in on this obscure beast, to say the least. He didn't come in a chariot. He didn't come in Air Force One. He didn't come in the beast. He came on a donkey, legs dragging, and the people shouting Hosanna. These impoverished people laying down palm fronds to represent his deity and his sovereignty. And as we examine that, it's fascinating to me. You see, these are people that have been subjected to the oligarchy of the Roman Empire. These God kings, so to speak, God with a small g, had had their boot on the neck of the Jews and had dominated the known world and they were brutal, to say the least. And through their reign of terror upon the Jews, they were tired. These Jews still had this downloaded app, but they had lost, for the most part, any ruler to lead them and guide them. You see, when they had started in that Passover, 
when the angel of death had passed over the homes that were covered by the blood of the lamb and they, they, they came through the Red Sea as God was guiding them by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. The Shekinah glory of God was going before the Israelites. They followed this and they created light with the steps before them but behind them it was complete and utter darkness so that the Egyptians were confused and he caused the Red Sea to consume them and kill them and now the Jews entered into this wilderness and in this wilderness... This is where God gives them this downloaded app to say, this is how my kingdom will be established. You have a relationship with me and you have a relationship with each other. I had the privilege this week to be invited to go speak at one of the middle schools here in town by one of uh, the members of our congregation who happens to be a teacher. And they said, come in and speak to the kids on anything you like. There was about 40 kids. And I talked to them. And it was a history class, so I had some fun with them. I took him through the Declaration of Independence, the preamble of the Constitution. I talked about first party, second party, third party purchase. I talked about the difference between freedom and liberty. I talked about more morality and character. I had a great time. Did some exercises with him. Did some magic tricks. I giggled. It was fun. I love junior high kids. Great group. Way more attentive than you. And anyways, in the course of this, in the course of it, I said to them, I said, um, where do our rights come from according to the Declaration of Independence? And a couple of them said government. And I said, no, no, let's listen to it again. And, and I, I was kind of setting them up similar to when I was uh, in, in a debate for when I was running for the state assembly. And I think it was the editor of the Acorn said to me, uh, do you believe that uh, creation should be taught in schools? I said, it's already being taught. And he said, really? I said, yes. He says, where? And I said, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are equal, endowed by their with certain inalienable rights. I said, so it's being already taught. And some people giggled, some people didn't like my answer, but so what? And that was the, the, the content of it. Well, I did the same thing with these young folks. I said, where do our rights come from if they're inalienable? Let's go through it again. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are, and I hadn't repeated this, it created. And so one kid, one of the, the young people said, God... And I said, yes, or higher power, however you want to depict it in a pluralistic society, but something greater than yourself. Someone who transcends anyone else telling you what you think is right or wrong. These are inalienable rights and they're established to give us a moral understanding to govern us. I said, how many of you kids think that stealing is wrong? And they all raise their hand. I said, but wait, what if I'm in power and I get to decide what kind of stealing? Like I get to take 50% of your income without you saying anything. I said, what about, I said, who's getting an A in the class? And one young man raises his hand. I said, okay, and I'll be the kid getting the F. And I'm gonna take two of your grades and give me two grades so my F will be a C and your A will be a C and we'll both be equal. Are you good with that? And they're like, no. I said, would you consider that stealing? And they're like, yeah. I said, but what if I'm in charge and I decide to make it so? Is that right? And the kids are like, no. We're getting somewhere, aren't we? So, <laughs> so my point to them was, these are inalienable rights, and it's established a, 
beyond our ability because we have the desire to want to suppress others. And I took them through this idea of freedom is having choices. And I said, if you have $100 in your paycheck, and I took them through the whole, you work at In-N-Out Burger, you get 15 bucks an hour, eight hours a day, and 120 bucks a day, and then you calculate that in a week, and then yeah, you end up with about 2,400 bucks a month. Uh, how much do you think a one-bedroom apartment is? The kids were really sharp, and they all told me. And I said, okay, so we subtract that, and then you got to pay for gas and electric, subtract that. And I said, whoa, don't forget about food. And they're like, we're out of money. I go, I know. And I said, how many of you have a cell phone? And all the kids raise their hand, they have a cell phone. I said, when that was asked to me in junior high, nobody had a cell phone. The entire culture has changed because somebody created a product that you needed to buy, and it's revolutionized the world. You all have cell phones. Your parents paid big money. How, what's the average price? And one kid goes, well, the new iPhone is 1400 bucks. I'm like, and you have one? Yeah, I do. I go, what is wrong? with your parents. But I, I didn't say that. I did not say that. And, and, I, and I said, you wouldn't be able to afford it, yet you own one. And I said, and you wanted the best one. And it was purchased with your parents' money. And I took them through the first party, second party, third party purchase. But the point was, I said, you wouldn't even have enough money to be able to pay the monthly on that, let alone just the price of the phone. And I said, and, and, and that's if you get to keep everything in your paycheck, I said, let's say you get $100 in your paycheck and you go to a restaurant where everything is $100 or less on the menu, you have the freedom to order anything you want. But then, then the federal government comes along and takes 25% of that, so you only have $75. You have $25 less, you have 25% less freedom because you have 25% less choices. And then the state takes 25%, so yeah, you have 50% less choices, 50% less freedom. Oh, and then the county comes in, takes 25%, you have 25% less choices, or 75% less choices, 75% less freedom. Oh, and then the city comes in, and we take the rest. Now you work all day and you get nothing. What is that called? And the kids are like, slave? I said, yes. (laughs) And yet, all these buildings, roads, everything is created by other people that take your money that you work for. I told them that wealth is created when two parties benefit. Government doesn't create wealth, it just divides it. We do need necessity for government. And there are certain things we need. And that's what we have to work towards. But I said, this is the remarkable thing about this representative form of government. I took them, I know you're getting bored, but it'll tie in. Stay with me. I told them, I said, the difference between a democracy and a representative form of government, and I already kind of spied the class out. I said, how many of you love dogs? And the majority of them, I love dogs. I said, how many of you love cats? I knew a handful of them. I like cats. I said, okay, we're going to vote on a dog park or a cat park. Everybody, democracy. How many people want a dog park? (laughs) How many people want a cat park? (laughs) Dog park it is. Hey. Okay, now, how many people want to kill all the cats? Dog people. (laughs) Cat people. No. We're killing the cats. Hey. I said, now let's take the cat people and move them around. You go here and you go here. And we broke it up into groups of eight. And I said, this is a representative form of government. All the cat people are here and they have a majority here. And close to a majority here, but not quite. And now you have to vote at your tables to get along. And the person that that you elect has to have the eight people at the table in agreement. And they're like working over it. And I said, now we have our representatives. We have two cat people, two dog people. And we have one person who's kind of mixed with that. So now it's going to be a lot harder to kill the cats. They're like, yeah, that's a representative form of government. They're like, oh, bing, light, cool, fun. What's my point? How does it tie into the text? I have no idea. No, (laughs) No, I do. I do. 
You see, because at this point in the history of Israel, when this, when this messianic prophecy that you saw up on the screen in Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, he is just and having salvation, this idea of deliverance, he's lowly, he's humble, he's riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, in this declaration, what had happened is they had gone from a representative form of government in the wilderness, they'd entered into the promised land, they had judges, and then finally they got tired of judges, and they wanted a king like everyone else did. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel at the time is the judge and he's, he's assessing and helping the people of Israel and God is using him to establish this moral download with the people. But the people are displeased with Samuel and they said to him, give us a king. And this is 1 Samuel 8 verses 6 through 22 taking notes. They said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me, that I should reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. What other gods would those be? Well, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. Shazam. He says, so they are doing to you also, Samuel, what they're doing to me. Now therefore heed their voice, However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them as I did with the young people. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots and will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties and will set them to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equip for his chariots, the beast. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And you can add to that wives and concubines. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants, the people who are friends of the king. He will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to a city. And of course they gave him Saul as king and we know how that went. Train wreck. Sad. You know, this week uh, we had the council meeting and had a number of folks show up with great concern over um, 5G, and we see it in the paper. We had a number of public speakers, very um, convincing, and I, I was moved by their presentation. And what's amazing about local government is it's accessible. Any one of you can come in on a Tuesday night council meeting and have three minutes before the council. You can share your your heart, some go over. I have limited ability to stop them other than saying you're in the red zone. Uh, could you put a caboose on that comment train? Some people honor that. Some people just keep going. 
You give them three minutes and some will still have an outburst in the council chambers and yet you still are accessible and they let you know and they're impassioned by it. We heard one man invoke uh, Iwo Jima as a Marine and that our responsibility as the council is to stand in defense of the country to stop the federal government from bringing 5G and I, I hear that. Others were commenting about this idea that we have the ability to stop the federal government and I hear that. And we do have in, in the history of mankind, it's called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate where you can contend against the greater force by standing for the will of the people. And, and folks came in for SB 54, the sanctuary state, a hundred people spoke, almost divided 50-50 and, and called on the council to stand in opposition to the state and also the federal government and to use our, our funds to step into a lawsuit and to an amicus brief or an amicus brief and, and to contend and, and I, I, I sit back and I, I listen and I'm moved by what they're saying, but I'm thinking to myself, where is this passion at the federal level? Have you gone to meet with Congresswoman Brownlee? Have you gone to meet with your assembly member Ir- Irwin? Have you gone to meet with your state senator Stern? Have you, have you impassioned them? Have you shown up to do this kind of work? And to their credit, they're starting to do that and they've got a meeting with Congresswoman Brownlee and I'm proud of them. But this accessibility to someone they can speak to is what really moves them. They don't know completely what we're about. And what was interesting is as soon as the 5G discussion was over, the entire chamber's cleared. And there was nobody remaining in the gallery when we passed the city budget. (laughs) Not one citizen. Tens of millions of dollars. Nobody was there. And I think to myself, in a representative form of government, we seldom participate in that representation. But we get upset when the things that are important to us don't happen and we go and speak to the person easily accessible, but we don't understand how to speak truth to power. And now, especially in California, we feel so overwhelmed and enslaved. I think as a council member, my hands being tied as the state government is usurping our autonomy and taking away so much and, and the federal government contending to take away from the state and, and the money, the higher up it goes, the, the, the less it comes down. And the bureaucracy and the bloated government, you go to Sacramento and it's just bloated. You go to Washington, D.C., it's just crazy. And here we are operating a city to the best of our ability with the trickle that comes down after they take 25, 50, 75 and you become more and more a slave of the state. And you want a voice. And you're oppressed. And you're struggling. And this was Israel. They had no voice. The government didn't represent them. They were barely Roman citizens at best, if even at all. And they're crying out for deliverance because the boot of Rome is on the neck of every Jew. And they're angry. And here a man comes who has raised the dead. Lazarus is a testimony. He's, he's been risen from the dead. And the religious leaders who are in cahoots with the government leaders and they, they've got their corner on the market in this 6,000 years of, of written history of oligarchies, the few ruling the many, wanting to keep them enslaved, holding that power, holding that authority. They've got the guns. They've got the, the weaponry. And the king has taken the best of their men, the best of their women, the best of their fields. And now they feel hopeless and impoverished. And at this moment where the kings, starting with Saul, then to David, then to Solomon and the division of the kingdom, and all of a sudden this, this, these kings have fallen prey to these, these seven deadly sins 
and the morality, most kingdoms don't fall from external force, but internal. This downloaded app is forgotten and the people begin to perish as the government melts. No one can rule them. Now they're enslaved by Babylon, sent into exile. And in that exile and in that, that, that misery of slavery, Zechariah speaks. And he says, your king is coming. It took 500 years for the king to come. They had been waiting for his arrival. Holding to the prophecy, holding to this Zechariah 9.9 that was given to them in exile. And they're waiting. They're looking for their king. They're realizing the problems of the monarchy. These people are not fair. And as they had embraced a king, the results were disastrous. They'd lost their nation. And they're looking for someone to deliver them from slavery and to bring salvation. They're looking for a king who's just, who has salvation, who's lowly as the prophecy would declare. And then the king comes, riding on the beast that he declared he would 500 years earlier, fulfilling the prophecy on the day declared in Daniel. I mean, this is amazing, and I don't want to go through the the numerology on it, but it is fascinating. And as he comes in on that day, on Passover, as the Lamb of God, riding as a king, declaring, they're shouting these verses, they are embracing him, laying down these symbols of deity and sovereignty. The religious rulers conspire to kill him. The Romans conspire to kill him. Why? Why? He was a threat to their corrupt system. Pausing for emphasis. Jesus is a threat to every corrupt system. When any man tries to get rid of Jesus Christ, you can be certain they are corrupt. Remove the Ten Commandments from the edifices of the buildings of our nation. Remove him from the schools. Remove him from anywhere. Why? What is the threat? is a threat to a corrupt system. You don't want someone telling people that they've been created in the image of God. You don't want somebody to think they have rights other than what the state gives them. You don't want anyone to think that they just have to be accountable to God and to each other and that we can con- continue in a life where we would have a kingdom that wouldn't require a massive amount of government intrusion. And yet they rejected him. The nation rejected him as their king that day. Within a week, he'd be dead. He'd be beaten and enslaved, whipped, spat upon, mocked, ridiculed, crucified, and buried. He would bleed out every drop of blood in his body. What he endured in the Via Dolorosa was unlike any other human being endured in life. He would die of suffocation. And yet, in his dying words, he would have you on his heart. Why? Because he knew that mankind, including you and me, was enslaved to a ruler that was oppressive, tyrannical. And that ruler is the nature of man. Our desire for pride, our desire for greed, our desire for lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. We can't rule our lives, let alone anyone else. The best we can do is cause someone to be enslaved to make us be fed. That we don't have to work, that we don't have to, and we can amass all the wealth 
And so we don't look at human beings as created in the image of God, but as objects for our wealth. And we are more equal than others. We enslave them. We cause them to be ignorant. The Bible says you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Remove the Bible. Remove the word of God. Remove Christ. Create a corrupt system where man doesn't realize that he has inalienable rights. Remove that. And then you can enslave man. They rejected him. They killed him. However, on that day, and declared by this room, and many others, countless around the world, though they killed the king, though they enslaved and imprisoned the king, his subjects that day bowed their knee to serve his kingdom. In humility, we have bowed the knee to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We're no longer ruled by the cruel tyrant of our own lusts. Oh, we have our backsliding. We're works in progress, but we have been cleansed of all unrighteousness and God has created in us a clean heart and renewed a right spirit in us. We now live for his kingdom. We're no longer ruled by selfish ambitions. It becomes the exception, not the rule. The rule now is Christ. His reign is just. His reign is free. His reign is humble. Free to us, it cost him his life. He poured out every drop of blood upon that cross for us to be delivered and to be set free and to have a new kingdom. The world has not seen the last of him. And I think about a day like this, a day like this, a king who comes in humility. We want to be delivered from the oppression of Sacramento and Washington, from the swamp. We think our salvation comes on Air Force One or the beast. We're so quick to engage in everything but prayer Submission, discernment as we spend time in his word, the king's decree to our human heart, that which brings us strength. Faith faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. We'd rather listen to Fox News than read our Bible. What are you waiting for? A government bailout? A prosperous economy? Your king is here. He's come. And his kingdom is one of humility, self sacrifice, accountability, service to others. It brings revival in the human heart, the greatest tyrant of all of mankind, the one government that is the hardest to overcome, and that is the government of the human heart where Christ comes to sit and reign. And yet we give over to anger and bitterness and lust and envy and pride and greed and we allow the baubles and the trinkets of this world to derail us to worship a God, small g, that does nothing but enslave us. He's come to set us free. Our king has arrived. Yes, that day, many missed it. But in this room, we are his subjects. We've bowed the knee to this great king. We love that he came in a humble beast, that his legs dragged on the ground as he rode. We declare his presence with these palm fronds, but more importantly, we give him freedom to sit upon the throne of our life, to change us from death unto life, that we would not come to be served, but to serve and to give our life as a ransom for the many. That we would do good to those who spitefully use us. That we would be instruments of his kingdom on this earth. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today is the day of salvation. Our king has come. Where is yours coming from if not today? If not this king? What is your hope in? We've experimented. Oh, it's not socialism. It's something new. Really. Even the kids understood that that's just silly. Folks, this king is the Lamb of God. His strength came in his humility. The strength of a man is measured by the power he possesses that he doesn't use. Nails didn't hold him to the cross. He was God. It was his love for you and me that his blood would be poured out for the remission of our sins, that we would be set free from the tyrannical government of of our, our sin nature, that we would be new creatures in Christ under a new kingdom, that we together in the presence of our king, the Lamb of God, would declare thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And today we are his subjects and we are prepared to usher in his resurrection, his coming, because if any place ever needed it, we do right now, right here. God, bring salvation to our home. Resurrect our broken hearts. Mend us. Heal us. Strengthen us. And out of the ashes, would you give us beauty? The hills that are green and verdant, would you let that be a rebirth of the purposes of your kingdom in our lives? That we would be dedicated to what is ahead? That we would honor him with the remaining breath in our life? And not allow these seven deadly sins and every other that falls in the subcategories to have a tyrannical rule that only enslaves us? God, please, we welcome you, Hosanna. This is Palm Sunday. Our King is here. And he has come to do a mighty work. And next Sunday, may our hearts be resurrected to the calling that is before us that his kingdom would come and it's it's time Hosanna, amen